Please stay standing as we read the Bible passage this morning. It is taken from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray as we come now to study the Bible. Our Father God, we do um, wish to begin by bowing before you and asking for your help as we study your word. We pray, uh, Father, that by your Spirit, you would teach us what it means to be salt and light in this world, a world that is not always friendly to biblical Christianity, that you would give us insight into what it is that you're teaching us here. And Father, for those of us who don't yet know you, we pray, Father, that uh, the light of Jesus would shine, perhaps for the first time. So we ask for the help of your Spirit as we come now to your word. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I bring you greetings from the uh, men's conference, which is uh, happening uh, right now. I was there on Friday and Saturday. I I was joking with some of them that perhaps I would be the only man here this morning, you know, me and a bunch of women to preach to. Um, But I'm glad to see that's not the case, I suppose. Uh, on, uh, On Friday... Uh, we went down to the men's conference. Uh, something else also took place on Friday. Friday uh, was January the 25th, and January the 25th is Robert Burns's birthday. Uh, on uh, Burns's birthday, the Scottish poet Haggis is uh, usually eaten uh, all over the world in uh, celebration of uh, uh, Burns's birthday. I- I've eaten Haggis and live to tell the tale. Uh, haggis um, is, uh, comes in various forms. You can actually get vegetarian haggis now, I'm told. And uh, so Friday was uh, Burns' birthday. He has a poem that is traditionally read out on such a day, uh, which has a line to it, uh, to the haggis. Chieftain of the pudding race, he says. I, 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 when I noticed that uh, Friday was uh, Burns' birthday and Haggis Day, I also discovered something else. In 1971, the United States government, uh, at least uh, Haggis in its original form, was banned. You, you cannot buy it uh, over here. Not, not in its original form. You can get the vegetarian form, but not the original form. Or, uh, you know, uh, because uh, one of its ingredients, its original ingredients, and uh, to be fair, it contains, you know, sheep offal, to put it politely, you know, sheep's lungs, 
One of its, one of its ingredients uh, was felt uh, by the Department of Agriculture to be less than ideal. And so since 1971, it's been, it's been banned. Now today in our world, uh, as we think about being salt and light, many people think that uh, biblical Christianity in its original form may be all very well in certain sort of uh, bowdlerized um, renditions. But there are ingredients in its original form that uh, are difficult to swallow for people today. And we have to be aware of this when we think about being salt and light. I'm sure you experience this when you're at work or at school, perhaps. The certain parts of uh, biblical Christianity, and of course we have to define that carefully. People have ideas which may not be exactly what we mean by biblical Christianity, false ideas of, of judgmentalism and all that. But nonetheless, there are certain aspects of biblical Christianity that people find difficult these days. I was first alerted to this uh, about 15 years or so ago when I came back from the mission field and we, uh, I was asked to do an evangelistic uh, question and answer session at Emmanuel College in Cambridge. They have different colleges at Cambridge. Emmanuel College's bar. Uh, every college in Cambridge has a bar. You can imagine that at Wheaton. And there we were at Emmanuel College uh, in the bar doing a question and answer session and suddenly a woman stormed to the front as she she grabbed the microphone and she said, uh, so you believe in one God? And I said, right. And then she said, so that means that you think all the other gods are wrong? And I said, well, you know, right. I mean, the parts of that I wanted to say a little more theological sophistication, but right. And then she said, how can you be so arrogant? Now, we didn't think we were being arrogant at all. We thought we were being salt and light. And yet the very nature of what Jesus is saying here is, to many people today, viewed as implicitly and explicitly arrogant. You are the salt of the earth. Global. You are the light of the world. What about all the other religions? What about people who have no Religion, though everyone has a worldview, if you want to use religion more broadly in its, uh, in its meaning. How can you be so arrogant? What are we to say to such things? Well, there are some easy answers to say. There's a very good book. Uh, D.A. Carson is doing the men's conference. He's written a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. You might want to get a copy. Basically what's going on is people are saying that uh, today, if you do not hold to this new ideology called relativistic tolerance, then we will not tolerate you. If you do not agree with our ideology, then you're not welcome at the table. You have to challenge this. We had to challenge it at Yale. We had to say, look, in some ways we're being the most liberal here. We want Muslims at the table. We want Hindus at the table. And we want biblical Christianity at the table. And it's not okay to say that you're relativistically tolerant and exclude us. And once we said that, we were welcomed. But relativistic tolerance does have an intolerant aspect to it, and that needs to be challenged. Whereas biblical Christianity 
has an ideology, of course. Jesus is the king, which is the main message of the Sermon on the Mount, as we've seen. But because Jesus is the king, we are called to love everyone, whether they agree with our ideology or not. You see, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so Jesus is uh, carrying on with his message in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've seen, as I just alluded, the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount is not ethical, religious, judgmentalism or superior morality. In fact, a lot of what Jesus says is fairly typical. You can find it in the Old Testament, even other religions. What is unusual and, in fact, unique about the Sermon on the Mount is who is preaching it. That's what they're amazed by. He sits down to teach them at the beginning, chapter 5, verse 2. And then the end, chapter 7, verse 29, what they're amazed at is that uh, he taught as one who had authority. Not as their teachers of the law. So when Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, he doesn't say, well, let me give my great bibliography a long list of different reasons why I disagree. He just says, you've heard it was said, I say to you. He's claiming to be the king, teaching about the kingdom. And then he comes to the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes also are not what we think of some people today about Christianity. They're not just saying, you know, be moral. Actually, the Beatitudes are saying we're not moral. None of us. We're all broken people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not those who think they are morally superior. In fact, those who know they're morally inferior. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because we've got to be empty of self to be filled with God. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because we know we do not have our own righteousness. We do not justify ourselves. We seek His justification. Those are the subjects of the kingdom. And then this this brilliantly structured uh, Beatitudes, it's a chiasm as we saw, it begins with the kingdom of heaven, it ends with the kingdom of heaven, verse uh, 10 of chapter 5, and right in the middle, the heart of it, they will see God. And there he is again, Jesus, who's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, you'll see God. In fact, they did, as he taught, they heard God talk, teach. Blessed are you. And then he comes to uh, the passage we're thinking this morning. And usually this passage is preached in a slightly sort of aggressive way. It's usually preached to Christians saying, come on, shape up, you know, be the salt of the earth, you know, come on, be light, come on, get with it, get with the program. But actually that's not at all the sort of theme or tone, uh, I think. Of this passage. In fact, what Jesus is saying, look, blessed are you, you beatitude Christians, you real Christians, empty of yourselves, filled with God. Blessed are you, the world will oppose that, but nonetheless, blessed are you, you are the light of the world. It's encouraging. You are the salt of the earth. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, be who you are in me. 
Be who you are as real Christians, filled with the Spirit, filled with God. Be who you are, and you will have global uh, influence, global impact. Let's, uh, let's look then at those two elements that I think, the two s- streams that go through these uh, few verses uh, this morning from 13 to 16 of chapter 5. First of all, Jesus is defining these real uh, Christians, what it means to be a real Christian. He uses these two very well-known metaphors, pictures, salt and light. This is what it means. Be who you are. Who are you? And he defines what it means to be one of his disciples, salt Light. Extremely familiar uh, terms and pictures, but in their familiarity, I find, often quite profoundly misunderstood. They're usually, I find, when I listen to people talk about it, misunderstood in two ways. They're misunderstood, people think they mean something individual, and people think they mean something non-verbal. But actually, you see, uh, when Jesus says, blessed are you, it's the plural form of you. So when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's talking about us. Not, not me as an individual, not you as an individual, but us together, the church, whether gathering or scattering at home, in the world, on campus. It's us. And immediately, that reduces the possibility of a guilt trip this morning. We together, we need each other. You, us. It's plural. Uh, The other common misunderstanding is to think that Jesus is talking about uh, nonverbal witness only, and that's the distinction that's being made. It's easy to see why people think that. If you look at verse 16, he says, uh, let your good works um, uh, show that that God is your Father, and so that people will praise your Father in heaven. Your good works. But actually, these good works include spoken works. Good works include verbal witness as well as nonverbal witness. It's both. And if you don't agree with me, uh, don't believe me about that immediately, look at verses 17 to 20 that, of course, straight away follows. Jesus is saying that actually the teaching of the Bible, the law and the prophets, is extremely important. He is the fulfillment of this teaching. Not, uh, not one little bit of this will go away, verse 18. I haven't come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. In fact, I want you to teach the Bible. I want you to have verbal witness. I want you to practice and teach this. And those who remove a little bit of it will be called least in the kingdom, or those who uphold it all will be called great in the kingdom. Once you understand the context, it's impossible to think that Jesus is making a distinction between verbal and nonverbal witness. In fact, it includes both. And recent um, uh, sort of philosophy of uh, how words uh, have an impact confirms this. Uh, In the last few decades or so, there's a theory called speech-action theory that just underlines uh, the intuition that uh, cultures have always had, that words have power, you see. That when we speak, we're actually doing something. Of course, that was the ancient attitude, In the beginning was the Word. God spoke the world into existence. So our modern idea that somehow words don't really matter. uh, No, they are a form of work. And Jesus wants good works, both verbal witness and 
non-verbal witness. So those are two common misunderstandings. It's plural, and it includes uh, verbal as well as non-verbal. But we have to understand what Jesus is saying, so we need to do that to delve into the images themselves. Salt. Well, this is a different purpose than for which it is primarily used today. Uh, Salt today is primarily used to make things taste better, isn't it? If your food isn't particularly um, tasty, you'll sprinkle some salt on it. Well, if that is what Jesus was meaning, he would be saying that uh, our job is to stop the earth from tasting bad, from uh, being rather insipid. We want it to taste a little bit better. We want to then be, we're like a condiment, you know, you're the ketchup of the world, the secret sauce of McDonald's, you know. Well, I'm but in the ancient world, though, of course, salt has always made food, food not taste bad, not, not, uh, not taste better when you use salt. In the ancient world, salt was primarily used for a different purpose. It was primarily used to stop food from going bad. It's a preservative, you see. Now, you've got to understand immediately what Jesus is assuming. He's assuming the world otherwise is going bad. You see. And so Christians have this extremely important world. They are the global moral preservatives. Our role, part of our purpose is to stop societies from going bad, to give people a chance to repent, come back to Jesus. Christians have always fulfilled that role. We might say that Jesus is saying, you are the refrigerator of the earth. You're there to preserve society so that there's maximum opportunity for people to hear the gospel. You are the salt of the earth. Then there's light. Well, light is a little more obvious. Light then, as now, means so you can see. But though it is a little bit more obvious, we are not really used to darkness anymore, are we? In our city, urban culture, there's very seldom actual darkness. And if there is, you just flick on a switch. But I want you to imagine a blackout. The whole street in which you live, the lights go out. And it's really, truly dark. You can't just flick on a switch because there's no power. And so you strike a match, it flickers, you find a candle... And you light it, and the darkness is pushed back. Now, immediately you can begin to see what Jesus is saying, isn't he? You know, no longer are you going to trip over the uh, chair in the middle of the room because now you can see it. You've got children, the four-year-old with their little sort of toy with wheels on it. Isn't, you're not going to f- put your foot on it and slip backwards. You can see it. We're guides. We're pointing people. We're showing the way. We are the global light of the world. We are the global spiritual illuminators. Christians point society back to God. Real Christians, the Beatitude Christians. There's many fake forms of Christianity. But these real Christians, you, plural, in your verbal and nonverbal witness, You're the sword of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're the global moral preservatives. You're the global spiritual illuminators. Isn't that encouraging? 
Christians uh, perhaps uh, appear so often insignificant, just a few grains of salt, a flickering candle. But actually, Jesus is saying there is a global impact. And that has been proved time and time again in the history of the church. They were the people, the church that turned the world upside down, Acts chapter 17, when they went to Thessalonica. Who would have thought that this little group would be a movement that turned the whole Roman Empire, at least formally, to Jesus? And so there they are gathered, this little band of Galilean peasants in the backwater of the empire. They're going to turn the world upside down. A little group of students, businessmen, housewives, mothers, grandmothers, children, you, plural, us. You may be thinking, you know, if I become a Christian this morning, it won't make much difference. It will. You'll be a part of a movement that has global significance. Now, I understand that perhaps some of our experiences of biblical Christianity would be a little strange or experiences of the church. I, I came across one poor man who had applied for a mission agency and he'd been turned down over the issue of alcohol. The, the irony was that he'd only cooked with alcohol. The double irony of this was, of course, if you cook with alcohol, there's no alcohol left. And to add insult to injury, the man was a chef. And perhaps you've experienced some of this sort of judgmentalism. Or maybe you think of the Crusades and the Inquisition. And perhaps in your mind it feels that the Christians are not so much the light of the world as, well, the accident-prone case history of the world. But actually, we do have this impact. Even us, this morning. What we're doing this morning has global significance. It's like uh, the butterfly effect in chaos theory. The idea is that a very small initial change can lead to later massive results. And so in the theory, a simple butterfly flapping its wings because the atmospheric system is so finely tuned can lead to a hurricane later and somewhere else. Similarly, us today, if we commit to be this kind of movement in the kingdom of heaven, we have a butterfly effect all around the world. Martin Luther said this, with this single word, I can be more defiant and boastful than they with all their power, swords, and guns. Now, you maybe look around and say, oh, I can see these people here, Pastor. They don't look very significant. There was a grieving couple who went to the president of Harvard, a man called Charles Eliot at the time, and their son had recently died, and they wanted to make a donation in his memory. They didn't appear particularly special, and so Charles Eliot, the president, suggested a rather minor contribution to a scholarship or something like that. And they said, well, actually, uh, President, uh, we're thinking of a building. And the president dismissed them and brushed them aside. They were a plain-looking couple. They went elsewhere and they established a $26 million memorial fund named Leland Stanford Junior University, better known today as Stanford. So don't be fooled by our outward appearance. The person sitting next to you may look like uh, they're insignificant, 
But let me tell you from the authority of Jesus himself, if they are real Christian, together we have global impact. Be encouraged. Don't let anyone tell you that your role as a Christian is insignificant at home or at work. It has global, sort of the earth, light of the world, significance. It's been proved time and time again in church history. And God willing, it will again. Well, so that is who we are. And of course, there is, though, an encouragement that Jesus brings to be that. To be who we are in Christ, empty of ourselves, filled with the Spirit. Now, once more, this is not a guilt trip. Jesus does not say, you must be the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. It's not a denouncement. It's a definition. It's not a command. It's courage. It's not criticism. It's calling. This is what a true Christian is, if you're a real Christian. Be who you are. Uh, But uh, Jesus does um, uh, give us a couple of comments about that, of how to be who we are. And so he says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer any good except to be thrown out and it's useless and it's trampled on by men. Now, how are we to understand this, what Jesus is saying there? A sodium chloride, the chemical compound of salt, uh, as people have noticed, uh, is actually a very stable uh, compound, and so in one sense, salt cannot lose its saltiness. However, salt in the ancient world, as uh, today, could nonetheless become useless if it was contaminated with dirt or other material that made it effectively lose its saltiness. This salt was then useless, and uh, in the ancient world, they would take that salt and they would Throw it out of the, of the front door. They throw it out onto the streets. And of course, then all the people walking by would walk over uh, the salt and it would be trampled on as people went uh, by the house. That's what Jesus is thinking of. That's the image in his mind. So Jesus is saying that though we are the salt of the earth, if we're a real Christian, us together as his people, Subjects of the kingdom of heaven following the king. Though that is true, our Christian witness can nonetheless become effectively useless if it's corrupted by moral contaminants. And that's true, isn't it? Uh, Sadly, a real Christian who steals or cheats or lies, if they really are still a real Christian, and at some point that might become questionable, because as Jesus says elsewhere, by their fruit you will know them. But if they are still a real Christian, their witness is significantly damaged. No longer moral preservatives. Uh, we become morally tarnished ourselves. Uh, no longer salt of the earth, thrown out onto the streets as useless, trampled on by people. No longer the refrigerator of the world, we become just a container in which uh, meat can rot, unplugged, if you like. The salt of the earth becomes roadkill. And of course, the point is, don't let that happen to you. Don't let your witness become contaminated by moral corruption. Or what about the light? 
How is it that uh, when we let our light shine before men, they praise God? Why don't they praise us? Well, look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. Who is the light of the world? Jesus. And so uh, Matthew 4, verse 16, uh, Jesus uh, quotes from Isaiah, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those, uh, who's that light? It's Jesus. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so right at the heart of Jesus' preaching of the kingdom, this metaphor of darkness and now lights because he has come. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven. A light has come. Now we, if we're in him, now shine that light. We're poor in spirit. We know that we're empty. We're not righteous of our own selves. It's his righteousness, his justification. And so we let our light shine before men, which is really his light. As the Puritans uh, used to say, all our good works are really only Christ's work in us. He is uh, the light, we are simply the reflection. He is the sun, we are merely the moon. He is the source, we the channel. And that's why people praise the Father in heaven. They, they see us for who we really are. We're broken people, all of us in one way or another. We're not perfect, none of us, and yet we are blessed. And when they get to know us, they realize it's not really us. It's, uh, it's God at work in us. As they see our light, they praise him. Now what is then Jesus saying? He's saying, don't hide that light. Uh, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. That's what we should be like. You, you set out right in the open for all to see. Uh, don't put the light under a basket. What's the point of uh, having a light on if you cover it up so no one can see it? be like having a light on inside a closet. It illuminates the inside of the closet well enough, but there's not much point in that light. Jesus is saying, as it were, come out of the closet. Take off the basket. What does that mean? Well, it means knowing our neighbors. It means letting our neighbors know us. So they'll see that we're poor in spirit, yet filled with God. Empty of ourselves, yet filled with God. Failures, yet righteous and blessed. Not hiding. So our light might shine. So a good witness is uh, in the world, but not of the world. The salt is not contaminated, and the light is shining in the open. Global moral preservative, global spiritual illumination. Integrity, not dirt. And in the open, known and being known in our neighborhood, at school, and at work. Now, what is it that prevents us from doing this? I asked myself that question as I studied this. What is it that prevents me from doing more of this? And I think actually Jesus uh, indicates some of the things that often present us. He says, let your light shine. In other words, it, it can be hard, can't it? Because we get criticized. Perhaps someone does say, you're arrogant. And then you have to try and answer it and say, well, actually, no, everyone has an ideological claim. 
And actually, our ideological claim is that Jesus is the king, and therefore we love everyone else, whether they agree with our ideology or not. And in fact, this contemporary ideology is really more intolerant. Well, you have these kind of discussions, you see. You get criticized. But whatever you do in life, you will be criticized. The only alternative is not to do anything and not to say anything. You hear these five ways to bury a good idea. We've never done it that way before. We're doing fine without it. We can't afford it. We're not ready for it. It's not our responsibility. Or the Chinese proverb, let the man who says it cannot be done not disturb the man doing it. (laughs) I rather like that one. One person was about to give a lecture, and uh, right beforehand he was handed an anonymous note with the simple word fool written on it in uppercase letters. And as he got up to speak, he said, uh, uh, many times I've received anonymous notes without someone's signature. This is the first time I received one where they forgot to write the note and just signed their name. (laughs) Someone else, as they're about to give a lecture, was handed a note by someone saying that they were going to give a philosophical assessment of their speech, some business environment or something like that, or maybe a church environment. And he, he, he mentioned this to the audience, and then he said, uh, after a pause, I may add that my trepidation is somewhat mitigated by the fact that the gentleman concerned spells philosophical with an F. For every action, there is an equal and proportionate criticism. <laughs> and so that's going to be true. So what do we want to be known for? Shine the light. We have integrity, not contaminated. Actually, usually people end up respecting us, won't they? The other thing that often prevents our witness is simple wrong-headedness. And Jesus, I think, indicates this as well when he, he sort of says, you know, salt mixed with mud? Who would do that? Light under a basket? No one does that kind of thing. It's appealing to our, our, our sense of, of uh, propriety, our sense of uh, sort of normality, our sense of what makes sense. <laughs> no one in their right mind would mix their salt with, might and, uh, with, with mud. And so as Christians, we, we should also be thinking, no one in their right mind who's a real Christian would mix their salt with dirt. It doesn't make any sense. It will ruin our witness. Let's not do that. Let's choose now not to do that. No in their right mind hides when they have something so special to tell people about and to live in a way that shows people. See, all the time people are presenting various theories and ideas, aren't they? They're living out in the open and they're presenting these theories loud and clear. And Jesus is saying we should be even more like that. Uh, Fred Turner who was the the McDonald's leader who took McDonald's all over the globe. He died recently on January the 7th, aged uh, 80. Uh, Fred Turner was uh, very pleased with McDonald's and made it uh, a global brand. And one of the things that he did was he took the, the famous golden arches off the restaurant facades and instead put them on massive poles near the highways so everyone could see them as they drove by. He was witnessing to McDonald's. Now, you may wish that he'd done it in a slightly quieter way, perhaps. How much more us Christians? 
That's what Jesus is saying. Don't put it under a basket. Be confident. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Now, of course, it's not always easy, as I know myself. But it is encouraging that Jesus looks at this uh, Galilean little group of peasants and predicts what indeed will be the case, that this movement will go all over the world. Same is true today. As we meet to pray for missionaries. As we have retreats and uh, get uh, the men together to uh, commit afresh to Jesus. As we meet this morning, we are part of a kingdom movement that has global significance. What a meaning for life. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that uh, you uh, say to us these words, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. We pray, uh, Father, that you give us uh, the commitment and the courage to, uh, to be that, to be who we are, to remove moral contaminants, and to not hide. Father, thank you that uh, this is uh, spoken to those who are poor in spirit, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is, those who are not perfect. And thank you, uh, Father, that when people see that we're not perfect and yet they notice that we're blessed, they wonder who does the blessing and they're taken to you. Father, I pray that would be true uh, for some even here this morning. And I pray it be true for us as we are salt of the earth and light of the world in our daily uh, uh, environment and neighborhoods and work situations. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.